So welcome everyone to this first day of session. It's very heartening to see um, so many people here practicing together. Uh, for this first talk, um, the title of it is um, Where Have We Come From? Who Are We? And Where Are We Going? And it's the name of a very well-known Paul Gauguin um, painting, the French Impressionist painter. And um, I chose it because it resonates with the Zen spirit of don't know mind, asking a question, not being certain of everything, fixed in some ideological certainty. But anyway, let's explore these um, questions together. Um, as you may know some, from some of my um, uh, Tuesday evening talks, I've recently been reading um, two books by um, the very well-known Israeli historian, Ibal Harari, two books, um, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. And they're best-selling books, um, very well written, very full of researched information. And the background to him, to him as a person is that he's quite a um, dedicated Buddhist practitioner in the um, Vipassana tradition. So he apparently sits for two hours every day and does a 30-day retreat every year. And my sense is that his um, book and his ideas and his writing is very much shaped by his meditative experience because he seems very, very grounded in um, present reality and not not um, not seduced, not taken away by ideologies of any kind, of any kind. So it has this ability to see through all ideologies as a kind of abstract, imagined view of reality that human beings create. <laughs> now, our tradition, of course, starts with um, the Buddha, who lived. 2,500 years ago. But that's, let's put it in some kind of historical context. 2,500 years ago is nothing. Do you know? Very brief period of time, really, in the great scheme of things. And what I want to focus on during this talk is that the, the life and times in which the Buddha lived um, are quite different. From Some things stay the same, but some things are very, very different. Um, he lived in um, an agrarian society where the, the great 90% of the people were farmers. Mm -hmm. um, today only about 2% of people are farmers. Um, so very different world. No iPhones. Mm -hmm. um, no multicultural restaurants downtown. Nothing like that. And uh, so very, very um, slower paced, um, probably simpler way of life that was much more in touch with nature than what, generally speaking, our lives tend to be, far less technological. So my aspiration in this talk is how do we apply those same teachings to our life and times, uh, which has very different influences on us to what happened in the Buddha's day. 
there are different ideologies and different religions that impact on us compared to the Buddha's day. And the Buddha in many ways was quite um, a radical. Um, remember he lived in a culture where there's many different gods and a very strict caste system and he comes up with this view based on his own experience that all human beings are capable of awakening, of religious awakening, not just the Brahmins. So he questions the, the ideology, the sort of um, dominant ideology of his day and we can do the same. We can do exactly the same and look at what the ideologies are that, that we may take for granted or we're brainwashed into. <clears throat> but if you look at it in context, the Buddha was uh, lived 2,500 years ago and the agricultural revolution has been dated at about 12,000 years ago and then what was called the, the cognitive revolution happened about 70,000 years ago. That's when human beings developed this uh, capacity to think in abstract terms and imagine different realities and communicate it to one another through language and organise themselves better. And that was the turning point where they started to become, we started to become um, at the top of the evolutionary tree. And then you go back um, 2.5 million years, the emergence of human beings using Stone Age tools, and then you go back 4.5 billion years, is the formation of the Earth, 2,500 years, just a little microsecond. Mm -hmm. Then if you fast forward from the Buddha, in terms of the transitions that have happened to human beings since his times, um, the um, scientific revolution is dated about 500 years ago and the industrial revolution where we started all this um, technology that has evolved to today started and perhaps as many people would say that, that the, the current revolution is the data revolution or the information revolution where we're really understanding data and information and decision making processes and algorithms and so on and where that may take us. So that's the, uh, that's the history that we've all come from, if we reflect on it. And even just in a, in a personal sense, um, just realising how rapidly um, evolutionary change and development is occurring. Like you, you look at that, that span, you know, from... 70,000 years cognitive revolution, 12,000 years um, agricultural revolution. For only 500 years ago, it's all speeding up, the, the rate of development. Um, being 70 years old, when I go back to thinking about what it was like in school as a schoolboy, I'm old enough to remember having pens and ink wells. That's how we wrote, right, up until I was about 10. And then ballpoint pens came in, great revolution in technology. And typewriters, and electric typewriters, and clunky big desk computers, and now iPhones. We all have an iPhone. It's rapidly, in a lifetime, that's changed over my lifetime and some of the other people here. And uh, so it accelerates as it goes along. 
Now, to go into the question, who are we? Um, now, as we understand it from a Dharma perspective, um, intellectually, but hopefully as we practice more, we understand it for ourselves intuitively, um, that this idea that we're a separate self or a soul and this kind of separate conscious identity that has free will and makes decisions and is master of its destiny and so on, um, that's the, the, the Dharma view of it and the scientific view of who we are seem to resonate now these days. Science seems to validate the Dharma way of understanding self rather than, than not validate it. Um, because with all of our MRI technology and looking at the brain, we can't find a soul or a self in there. Mm-hmm. We understand that a lot of our decisions um, and actions and so on are based on a lot which is unconscious to our conscious mind. You know, just as our, our heart and our lungs breathe without us having to think about it, so much of our decision decision making actually actually happens unconsciously. There's no little self in there running the show, mm-hmm. is what science is demonstrating. And that, that resonates with the Dharma position. Everything is kind of like, it, it points towards an integration of different networks and so on operating that end up making decisions that go in a, a certain way. And a lot of it just happens organically. If you think of, um, uh, an example in nature, like a a beehive, the queen bee isn't there bossing everyone around telling them what they should do. You go to that flower and you go to that one and you go over there. Everyone's just doing what they need to do organically. And that, in a way, is a a metaphor for the way a human being operates. There's no queen bee in there running the show, or king bee, for that matter. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of running itself, in a way, in an organic way. And so from a Dharma point of view, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit pedantic to say that there is no self. Obviously there is some sense of personhood and individuality, that's, that's common sense. It's just that it's an inadequate way of understanding what the nature of reality is. A sense of self is made up of all non-self aspects it's connected to everything. It's not some isolated unit like a soul. It's connected to everything that exists. And that's what we understand more and more through Dharma practice. Now, Harari gives us a different idea of what a religion is. Um, We usually think of a religion as a belief in a god. Um, His version of religion, which I tend to agree with, um, is any kind of imagined reality or ideology that has a narrative to it and it has symbols that goes along with it and it organises people to think and feel and act in in an organised whole way and it tries to promote itself to bring other people into the tent. So if you look at religion that way, communism is a religion, capitalism is a religion, 
You know, humanism is a religion. And what he identifies, and which I think is, I agree with him, is that two of the, the main things which um, shape our current way of being in the world is not so much things like, well, for some people it's still religions like Christianity and Islam and so on, but more in, in, a, in a Western environment, what really shapes our life is humanism from where we get our values and science. Mm-hmm. And we have faith in those things and we just assume they're right, just like people years ago thought that Christianity was just right, Catholicism was just right. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're constructed human realities. Mm-hmm. And um, what he tells us about humanism is that in many ways, I mean, a lot of good things come out of humanism, like looking at the importance of human rights across different genders and and, uh, races and so on. But what's central to humanism is we don't think the gods are the the bosses of the universe. We think we are. That human beings, we have a very human-centric view of the world. as a little sideline to that, I was in the news just a couple of days ago, which is very telling, that in Canberra, Canberra was the first state in Australia to recognise domestic animals as sentient beings. Yeah, true. I mean, we'd, we'd all think that domestic animals are sentient beings, or even farm animals are sentient beings. But it was legally recognised that they're now sentient beings. It's taken us that long for one state to come to that view. So we do have a a very human-centric way of of looking at the world. And what is central to that, whether it's in the Buddha's day or it's our day, or it seems to have accelerated or be more accentuated in our day, is that human beings are just set on the pursuit of happiness. And um, humanism promotes the pursuit of happiness and individual happiness more and more. It's kind of focusing more on the individual rather than the whole. So that's one of the influences that impacts on us through the media, through what we read and so on. And it's kind of like a religion. We just assume that it's true. Mm because everyone else thinks it's true. Kind of like a collective delusion. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not here and now a sensory reality. It's an abstraction from it. In our current life, um, the pursuit of happiness has always been a human ambition, um, but it's accentuated, um, manipulated by us being able to take chemicals that change the chemistry of our brain to make us feel momentarily happier, whether they're illegal or legal, recreational, medicinal. We can create virtual realities. We can transport ourselves to various places in the world. 
We can eat just about any kind of food we want to. It's sort of all pretty much laid on for us as present-day human beings. But what remains the same is that this, this pursuit of happiness. Now, some of you may be aware of the book title of one of my friends and colleagues' books in the Ordinary Minds in School, Barry Madgett's book, Ending the Pursuit of Happiness. When you look at what the basic psychology of Dharma practice is, it's at the core of it, it's recognising that as human beings, we're obsessed with our feelings and happy feelings and we grasp after them and we want more of the happy feelings and we want less of the unhappy feelings. And it's central to all forms of Buddhist traditions. The more you go down that path trying to grasp the happy feelings, avoid the unhappy feelings, or just numb yourself out through apathy, it doesn't make you any happy. That's why we're all here today. Because we're caught in that, but we've got some insight into recognising that we're caught in it. And, of course, what the the Dharma teaching is, is that you, you get untangled from this grasping and aversion, chasing happy feelings, trying to get rid of unhappy ones, numbing yourself out. You untangle yourself from that, and there is a kind of happiness, another kind of happiness, that emerges, a very peaceful happiness. very contented happiness. Um, But that's not the way most of the world goes. Most of the world is progressing and accelerating more towards manipulating consciousness in some kind of way so we can stay permanently happy. But what is at the core of this is still this, this grasping, attached way of trying to reach that place. And humanism makes us even more preoccupied with our feelings. We worship our feelings. And even something like mindfulness, which is a core Buddhist teaching, um, has become distorted in, through commercialisation and through sort of narcissistic ways of understanding our happiness by promoting as something that's going to make you feel good straight away like a quick fix almost. Mm-hmm. And as you know, it's not that. It's often, it's a authentic mindfulness is actually quite a confronting experience. And as you, you look honestly and with compassion into your own experience, um, you see the good and the bad and the ugly there. It's not just good. Um, anyone who's practised authentic mindfulness for long enough or recognise elements in themselves, for example, that are resentful or mean or petty. You know, we, we recognise all of that stuff and that's, so it's an uncovering process and it's usually a slow waking up process. It's not something that makes you necessarily feel good straight away, but that's the way it's being sold. <clears throat> to give a little bit more of Buddhist psychology of how grasping aversion and apathy works its way through our mind, through our sense of self. There's a very neat little um, teaching called the Four Layers of Consciousness, which I made reference to a week or so ago, um, which was written by Thich Nhat Hanh. 
first layer is what's called mind consciousness, which in um, secular mindfulness research is usually referred to as the default mind. It's a mind that just sort of automatically just goes back to automatically thinking, judging, planning, analysing, worrying, thinking, daydreaming, that mind. You know that mind? <laughs> yeah, that one? <laughs> and then there is the, the consciousness of um, sensory experience, you know, just hearing and seeing and touching and tasting and smelling, you know, and being that visceral experience of being in a body, that sensory consciousness. And there is the storehouse consciousness, which is really similar to our, our idea of the unconscious, where all our memories are stored and all of our experiences are stored. And then around that storehouse consciousness is another form of consciousness, which is called manas, M-A-N-A-S, which is that sense of separate self. You know, so the separate self wraps itself around the storehouse consciousness and goes, this is mine, right? this is me, I, the, all of this belongs to me. And the metaphor they use, which is a very, a very good one, it's like a vine that wraps itself around the trunk of a tree. Right? It's, it's like it's mine, it belongs to me, it's all mine. And as we know, some vines wrap themselves around trees to the point where they destroy the tree. Right? And we could even do that as human beings. But so the practice of the practice we do to use that, that that neat little model is that we're recognizing that default mind consciousness that we automatically fall into and we practice mindfulness to keep our consciousness awake to the present moment sensory experience. Just breathing, just hearing, just seeing, just noticing thoughts come and go as energy fragments. Mm -hmm. And so we're cultivating that kind of mind. And as we do that, kind of like there's a, for want of a better word, there's a purification process occurs. So instead of feeding that storehouse computer with nonsense, we're feeding it just with pure reality-based experience. So it purifies over time. And then that shapes the way we make decisions and have feelings and lead our lives. It's kind of like we're, we're bringing a wisdom into that unconscious storehouse rather than just being driven by ideologies and religions and so on. Mm -hmm. So some kind of organic wisdom arises out of that. And if we, if we practice long enough, we start to see as we get untangled from the, this manic pursuit of happiness, um, there's actually no separate self at the bottom of it all anyway mm -hmm. that, that has to make itself into some separate entity. It's, sort of, it's a sense of interbeing, of organic inclusiveness comes into our experience. So where are we going? One of the things Harari says, it's one of the big questions of our times, uh, are organisms just algorithms? Mm -hmm. um, there is a belief or a view that 
organisms are just data processing units that make decisions and the, the ones who make the best decisions survive, etc. And if some science can under, start to unravel and understand what the algorithms are that, that, um, that inform organisms to behave in a certain way, then we can improve on it with technology and that human beings will be interacted, inter, integrated with technology so that we become part or organism and part technology. Mm-hmm. My new cochlear is <laughs> <laughs> be- just at the beginning stages of how technology interacts with human beings. And the way it often evolves is someone's got a, like a hearing impairment like me, so they, they, they discover and invent these things that will improve your hearing. But if you look at the way that science progresses, what's used to overcome a disability then it evolves and develops to actually increase performance overall. So it's not hard to imagine that in a hundred years all human beings will have an advanced version of cochlear implants because they'll help you to hear better than normal humans. And, and technology that will help you to see better than other human beings, right? And computer chips in your brains that will help you to think better than other human beings or remember better than other human beings. It's not totally unrealistic to consider that things will evolve in that direction, if they do. And, um, but do we have choices? Mm-hmm. Do we have choices? Can we make conscious choices about um, whether personally we want to go down those pathways or not? Um, The current situation that we find ourselves in is, as we look at that evolution from agriculture to science to industrial revolution, etc., now as human beings, you know, in contrast to the Buddha, we, we realistically live in a life an age where once, one, we've transcended the boundaries of Earth, we've gone to the moon and we send space probes out into space. We've got nuclear weapons that could destroy, destroy all the life forms on Earth. We're moving towards um, global warming and accelerating towards global warming and all of the disasters that will come with that. We live in a very precarious kind of age. Mm-hmm. And it's all driven by this still, I think, the fundamental delusion that the Buddha recognised and still operates today, that I'm an individual pursuing my own happiness no matter what, and that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make us happier. Um, It leads to suffering for ourselves and it leads to suffering for others. The insight that we cultivate from this is to see through all of that. Um, I'm 70 years of age. If I'm lucky, I've got another 30 years left. (laughs) There's some people here who'll be around about 30 and maybe you've got 70 years left. Uh And what what will life look like in the next 70 years. If my 70 years went from inkwells and nib pens to iPhones, what will your world develop into? Mm-hmm. 
what kind of new technologies will come along um, that will impact on your life. So as you grow older, you know, if this practice is to keep you grounded in all of that accelerating change, keep it, keep it simple. Just keep in touch with present moment sensory experience. Question and don't take for granted any kind of ideologies or any kind of narratives, whether your own narrative about yourself or collective narratives. I see them as narratives. Be embodied, in touch with your body, this natural part of you, which is an organism, which is part of nature, which informs you. And spend as much time in nature as you possibly can, you know, connecting with the natural world, not just being caught up in the, in the technical world of computers and data and iPhones. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the way that you'll stay grounded, um, centred, kind, compassionate, wise um, through all of this potential accelerated change that we'll go through.